Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the essential role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's special edition episode of Design Your Life, Tied for Change. Today I catch up with Craig Leeson, Tasmanian Australian of the Year. Craig is an award-winning filmmaker, journalist, television presenter and entrepreneur. His first feature-length documentary, A Plastic Ocean, was ranked number one on the iTunes documentary charts in the US, Canada and the UK, and was seriously influential in launching a global impetus for change to save our oceans from plastic pollution. Hey Craig, welcome to Design Your Life, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm sitting here in Avalon, uh, looking out at a beautiful body of water and uh, after spending the last 12 months traveling trying to get the new film finished it's nice to actually sit in one place and enjoy some surfing yeah it's a it's a you're lucky it's a beautiful spot down there i have to say i'm so honored to have you on the show today and congratulations again for being recently announced as the tasmanian australian of the year thank you yeah it look it's a great honor uh it's something that took me by surprise uh, I still don't know who nominated me. No one's owning up oh, to it. Um, probably Cass. Yes, might be Kazuma, uh, who's a great mate of mine who I'm working with up here at the moment. But yeah. um, it's 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 an award that uh, you don't choose. It, it comes to you. And as I said, it took me by surprise. So it was a humbling experience. I actually, uh, when a notification first came through from the Tasmanian government in an email, but... When I saw it, it, uh, it looked like one of those uh, spam emails. You know, the ones that go, you've been selected for who's who. Please respond yeah. with all your bank details and uh, some money. And so I deleted wow. it. And a week later, the same email came. So I deleted it again. And then my office called me and said, uh, my office in Hong Kong and said, uh, you need to call the Tasmanian government. They're trying to get hold of you. Um, you've got, got this award. And so when I, I got back to them, I was full of apologies. But um, so uh, completely unexpected and very humbling uh, to, to have such uh, an honor and um, to be able yeah. to be officially a Tasmanian ambassador, I guess, uh, because unofficially I've uh, been bothering my friends and anyone who will listen to me for decades about how beautiful Tasmania <laughs> is and why they should yeah. pay the place a visit. And I presume you're from Tasmania originally? From the northwest coast, a town called Burnie. Um, yeah. I grew up in a suburb called Ocean Vista, which as its name suggests, was on the beach. Amazing, amazing. I mean, obviously you love to be near the water. And we'll talk more about your, your, your film um, that you did recently too, which is incredible. Are you getting a lot of attention around this new announcement around you being Tasmania Australian of the Year? Yeah, I am from my family, actually. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're pretty wrapped with it. Uh, but uh, listen, we, we, I spent a week uh, in Canberra with the National Australia Day Council who runs the award. And it was intense, actually. There were four events during the day with the other recipients of the award. They name uh, four awards people from each state the the australian of the year the local hero of the year the senior australian of the year and the uh, the young person of the year and so they they'd send us all to canberra and we have a week where we we meet the prime minister um, at the lodge we meet the governor general at uh, his residence 
and talk to them about the issues that we're passionate about, that we're campaigning for, and the platforms that we're speaking from. Um, so it's, it's an inspirational to be surrounded by the other Australians of the year and to hear about their journey, uh, where they've come from, the platforms that they're representing, whether it be virologists or um, uh, Indigenous Australians, um, or even Dylan Alcott, who's you know, named the Australian of the year and the work that he's doing uh, for disabled people across the country and uh, the recognition that he's bringing to uh, areas of disability is just absolutely incredible. So it's, um, it, it was intense um, and there is a program of events throughout the year that we're mm. asked to attend. We don't have to, um, it's not a prerequisite that comes with the award, but certainly uh, it is great to be able to have the platform so that for me, particularly in the areas of climate change, biodiversity loss, single-use plastics, you know, these sorts of environment issues that I think should be front and centre um, in the, the concerns that we have as community governments, corporate leaders. Uh, it, it's a great platform to uh, push those issues and to talk to other people about them. I mean, you've, you've already got an incredible profile and a phenomenal career in media as reporter, director, producer, film festival founder. You've done everything and continue to do everything. But this, this has been incredible timing, right? I mean, to, 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 to launch that film uh, recently and then to become, you know, Tasmanian Australian of the Year. It's yeah. perfect timing. You couldn't have planned it better. Yeah. Well, actually, it was interesting because um, the film that we're launching is The Last Glaciers, which is being released on IMAX in March in North America first. And that's, that's a film that took four years and 12 countries we visited to produce it. And I was actually at COP26 in Glasgow, uh, the climate change conference. And we had a, a private screening of the film to leaders and people that were at COP26 to gauge reaction to the film. When they announced the wow. uh, Australian of the Year Awards in Tasmania. So I zoomed in. My parents actually went to the awards for me and picked it up. Oh, um, wow. My mum my made a name for herself by leaping out of the chair <laughs> and, uh, uh, in excitement when it <laughs> happened. And um, I delivered an address across Zoom at 4 a.m. in the morning. So as you say, the timing has been really good and it, it gives us a voice in Australia, particularly at a time when I think climate needs to be front and center following the 2019-2020 bushfires and the devastation that they caused. Uh, anybody who was involved in that, in, uh, from the firefighters to the NGOs that have been helping clean up and families get back on their feet, understand that uh, it was climate induced. And the scientists will tell you that uh, it's been a 10 year uh, to 20 year lead up to that, those fires and they've been knocking on the door of politicians in the past two decades saying this is going to happen. So the issue is current and very real for Australians. And um, I, I mean, I've been coming to the northern beaches of Sydney for the past 20 years, and I've never seen weather like what we've seen this summer, for example. And, and some here might say what summer we've had days where yeah. one minute it's been you know 30 degrees the next minute it, there's been uh, a meter of water on the highways and and floods mm. and it's just been absolutely yeah. incredible and uh, so it is an issue we've got an election coming up i think it is going to be a campaign issue i don't think the federal government wants it to be because uh, it they're they're trying to direct people's attention away from from that as an issue um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so I hope that we see voters in Australia uh, actually call for action from all their political leaders, regardless of who is ultimately successful, but use their vote to send a message that we need to do something about uh, the climate. It is, a, it is code red. Uh, we've got no time left to fix it. Um, no. And if we don't, we're going to see uh, a lot of the problems we're seeing right now uh, exacerbated and actually become a problem for everybody and it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy whether you live on the coast whether you live inland uh, climate affects everybody absolutely and we and we all I mean instead of thinking that someone else is going to sort it out for us we all have an opportunity where we have to absolutely a mandate to go I need to play my part in 
in fixing this problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I say the kind of design's got us in this problem. Design can get us out of this problem. I, it's like, this is like, you know, it's massive, massive problem that we need to solve. Look, I totally agree with you on that. And in fact, the scientists that I talk to agree with you on that. Uh, Single-use plastics, for example, take that problem. Um, that is a design flaw. Ultimately, it is a design flaw. We design single-use pro products. We can design alternative products that do the same job that aren't a problem to the environment or to human health. And it becomes a design issue. And how do you get better design? Well, you encourage uh, designers into that area, whether it be through encouraging young entrepreneurs, um, through subsidizing research and development. And as you know, uh, the more people you have working on a problem, the faster that problem becomes solved. And where design is concerned, uh, that's certainly the case. And research and development is critical to that. But we need to put the funding into it. And whether that comes from the private sector or from the government sector, uh, is it doesn't matter. I, um, I think most people would like to see their taxes go into sorting out uh, some of these issues as opposed to subsidising the oil and gas industry, for example, and, and exacerbating the issue through consistent subsidisation of a problem. So, um, uh, Vince, we need designers to take on the problem and, we need, uh, and they need support from the community and government leaders. We've already profited, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? My generation, my parents' generation, and profited from doing the wrong thing. Not that we really knew at the time or we ignored no. the fact, you know, it was convenient to ignore the fact we were doing the wrong thing. But that's been filled. Now there's this niche, uh, there's this whole market area open where we can create alternative products to the, to the damaging products, where we can uh, create alternative services and experiences. And there are young kids coming through the ranks who are eager to do that and profit from it. So if you're an established company and you're not already building ESG into your uh, company ethos, if you're not building a sustainability message into the marketing and to your branding, then there are young consumers with money who are coming online, uh, smarter consumers who know that there are certain products that are damaging to the environment, that are damaging to their health, who will shift or move or start their buying experience with companies that are uh, demonstrating sustainability, environmental friendliness, uh, and, and pushing that message through marketing without greenwashing. And, and, and if you're not doing that, then you're going to become a dinosaur because people have choice. And so this is something I'm pushing at the moment. I'm building a, a business here in Australia uh, with my mate Kaz, um, where we're trying to demonstrate solutions to these problems through smarter consumerism and show people that as an individual, you can actually move the needle because every dollar you spend sends a profound message to uh, branding people, to the producers of these products, to the investors of the companies that produce these products, to the banks uh, that, uh, that uh, partner up with investors who provide the funding and then to governments you know, who regulate the markets that these operators uh, operate within by simply buying products that have sustainable messaging. Uh, so it's critical, I think, that, uh, um, that as consumers and individuals, we send that message, whether it's through the dollar we spend or the messages uh, that we put out into the social media marketplace uh, about the experiences that we've had. And, you know, you know what it's like these days, if you want to try and reach somebody at a company, it's very difficult these days because the contact us button is hidden. The ability to get to someone directly is no longer a matter of picking up the phone. You've got to go through yeah. um, call centers and all sorts of things. But if you make a noise on social media, then many companies very quickly uh, come, it comes to their attention. And so uh, today for young people, that is often the only course of action that they have. And, and it's it's incredible uh, incredible to see that happening. And we we've recently been, uh, done we're doing a podcast series with B Corp. Uh, we talked to Andrew Davies, who's the CEO of B Corp Australia New Zealand, uh, on Monday, um, and he was saying a very similar thing around this younger generation coming through. And this is all about business for good. It's still business for profit, but but certainly being very focused on doing the right thing. Yeah, and we should focus on on 
profitable business for good. Um, the, you know, the, the idea of a non-profit, I think, uh, as was pointed out to me the other day, uh, which is, you know, and this is something that I talk a lot about with young people about, is, is don't, don't be uh, um, scared of, of, of pushing your profit point in building a business because mm-hmm. if you act as a, as a not-for-profit, then all you're doing is allowing someone else somewhere doing the same thing as you are to make profit from that. So we need to demonstrate that we can make profit and we can, uh, we can make profit by doing good and by producing products that are better for the environment. And then we'll start to move the needle because that's when you get investors involved. That's when shareholders be, uh, start to be happy because the return on their product is starting to reach the same sorts of returns that they were getting from legacy industry products. Yeah, amazing. And, and I think that... Um I mean, there's so much to do around that, and this, the series that we're the series that we're talking to you about today is the Tide for Change uh, series, and all about the ocean. and And we've interviewed quite a few people around, you know, uh, David Chiron, who's like a flight flight board uh, designer, you know, the electric electric surfboards, etc., going gangbusters. Mm. Um, another guy called um, Spencer Frost, who's a filmmaker around kind of surf film in uh, out of Avalon as well. Um, what we wanted to do talk to you today was just around your phenomenal film, A Plastic Ocean, uh, that's on Netflix. And we're just going to talk first about how it came about, because I, I was also quite interested in how you made that transition from, you know, being a, a I guess, a journalist, uh, media presenter, to, to where you are, where you are today. Yeah, so I was a television correspondent um, covering... Asian issues for companies like net broadcasters like CNN. Um, I was the the foreign correspondent in Asia for Channel Seven. Um, I worked with uh, Al Jazeera, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they would send me to all sorts of problem spots around the world uh, as they they happened, and I would report on you know the the major issues of the day. And it's an exciting job being parachuted into different countries and different cultures and and hitting the ground and having to deal with things, you know, like the Nepal earthquake disaster. Um, we were the first journalists in as earthquake, the earthquake uh, aftershocks were still happening um, to war zones around the world and all sorts of things. Um, but ultimately, I started to question the, the uh, effort that was put in versus the result. And by that, I mean... Um, you know, you, you spend two to three days compiling a report, filming interviews, filming what we call B-roll, general vision, to go with the, the report, and then editing that. And you'd edit it into a, a report that was a minute and a half long. So you'd have to condense these quite often very complex stories down to a minute and a half. And so you, it had to be very basic. It had to be also colorful. Um, and it had to hit the major points. And then it will go to air uh, in the 7 p.m. news bulletin or in the case of Al Jazeera and CNN, rotationally through the 24-hour news cycle, which was a bit more rewarding. But then it would be gone, never to be seen of again. And I started to realize that I was just feeding this hungry monster and not seeing the rewards that I wanted other than the dopamine hit of going into these places and the exciting times of 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 you know meeting interesting people and the the scenarios that we were we were posted to uh but the actual reward for telling the story i.e as a storyteller wasn't there for me so i started moving into more long-form television i worked for a current affairs program called inside story which was you know 15 minute to half an hour reports and i found that uh, that was far more rewarding in terms of not only telling the story and expanding on a lot of the issues, but also that particular news program or current affairs program was sent to other networks around the world and was viewed by many people um, over the course of 12 months. Uh, And that started to resonate with me more. So I wanted to move into documentary filmmaking. I uh, was covering at the time the fall of Sahato in Indonesia in the early late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I had a, a friend who worked for Financial Times who was killed during the East Timor War that sprung up as a result of, of that particular uh, issue. 
And I just started to realize that, you know, th this wasn't something I wanted to pursue for the rest of my life. So I went to Miami and learned how to fly air aircraft um, for six months, thinking that, you know, I just want to put my head in a different space, learn a new skill and see whether mm -hmm. I wanted to continue as a news reporter or maybe I wanted to do something new. And during that time, National Geographic Channel reached out to me and asked me to go back to Asia and set up uh, a program uh, as they established a headquarters in Hong Kong for the channel, National Geographic Channel Asia. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity to do what I'd actually started to do and enjoyed, which was more long-form storytelling. So I accepted the challenge and went back and worked with National Geographic Channel and enjoyed the process of making documentaries. And so set up my own company and started to actually provide uh, product to people like National Geographic Channel, Discovery, uh, to, to bi the Biography Channel, History Channel, all, the, all of these different uh, uh, broadcasters around the world. And then I realized I'd found my calling. I was able to not only become a storyteller, but the stories I told would last for a lifetime and maybe more lifetime. So, you know, 50 years, 100 years, people will still be able to watch the documentaries that I did. They'll still be relevant, even if in, just in a historical context. Um, but certainly the documentaries that I've made since uh, the, those um, early 2000s are still screening somewhere in the world. And, uh, you know, the a Plastic Ocean was a, an eight-year project. And we went to 21 countries with that. It was released in... Uh, 2017 and still today it's winning awards still today it's being listed in the top five documentaries that uh, people put together in internet companies put together and platforms uh, mention when they're talking about environment movies that are worth watching so that for me gives me a, as a storyteller a, a greater uh, pleasure um, and a sense of responsibility as a storyteller that we're moving the needle and we're actually having an impact. Well, it goes without saying that it's uh, an incredible film. Uh, I watched it again last night and it, uh, you know, it really, it, you know, it brings you to tears in, and just also just in complete disbelief of this world uh, and the massive problem, problems that are there that need to be addressed. Um, it was horrific to see that whale, that, that, that massive, was it a blue whale? Uh, it was a 25 the, meter whale. The, uh, well, the first eight minutes of the film, we don't even show you plastic. We, you, we, we show you, we're out looking for the blue whales, yes. And, um, we, and the reason I did that uh, was because I wanted people to watch the film that wouldn't go and see a film normally uh, about plastic or wouldn't see an, an environment film or an impact film. So when you start to watch the film, you actually, it looks like a, an Oceans film. It is an Oceans film. It's, it's about yeah. uh, beautiful uh, seascapes. It's about travel. It's about marine environments. And it's about blue whales. And of course, eight minutes in, we hit that plastic slick uh, where the blue whales are feeding. And we, we start to realize that there's a big problem. And if the blue whales are feeding in a place where the plastic is and they can't tell the difference between plastic and krill, then what does that mean for oceans all around the world? And then ultimately, as we go on to discover the problem, what does that mean for human health? Well, that, that, it's funny because that, that beginning of the film really tricked me because <laughs> I, was, I was just, you know, I was uh, going along with that thinking, hang on, have you genuinely been, you know, looking for filming the, the blue whale, trying to find it and film it, never been shot before? Um, and then you discovered the, the issue with plastic. I mean, I think that was obviously very clever because I thought that um, you were creating another documentary or was it like a, a mock documentary, yeah. as you said, to get people over the line? We, we actually, I mean, we, we used that as a storytelling device. We went to that part of the world because A, we knew blue whales were there and this is off the coast of Sri Lanka. And it's the first time that scientists have been able to study blue whales and because there is a resident population there um, and these are you know they're the biggest animal on the planet they grow to 37 meters and and yet they're the hardest animal to find because they were hunted to almost extinction by humans and so we don't know much about them but we did know they were there and they've been something that i've wanted to film all my life but uh, we did go there now wanting to also study plastics in the Indian Ocean because it was one ocean mm -hmm. that we didn't 
know about in terms of how much plastic was there. And so the idea was to go there to film blue whales to also look at the plastic. And if we found plastic, to then ponder, well, if the blue whales are here and, uh, and these are majestic animals and we're able to film them, uh, what does that mean about their health? So we actually, there, there was the, the dual uh, story thread running at that time. And it was quite a gamble, to be honest, because first of all, they're very hard to find. And no one at that point had filmed them successfully in that area, certainly not underwater, certainly not uh, pygmy blue whales as we, we came across. Um, and secondly, you know, so we thought, well, if we don't get the blue whales, we can also, we've got our scientists with us, we can test the water, we can run our manta trawls, we can see how much plastic is in the water. And so we can then also do our studies on the oceans around the world and complete those studies, although that was the start of the program at the time, uh, with some data on where plastic, which gyres we're finding plastic in, how far the plastic spreads and what marine life it's affecting. We got incredibly lucky because for two weeks we filmed up and down the coastline. We could see them in a distance, we could see them blowing, but um, these animals are incredibly agile and, and as we got close to them they would dive and you wouldn't see them again for 30 minutes. They can stay underwater for 30 or 40 minutes quite easily and so it's very difficult to follow them in which direction they went in. Uh, then there was the tsunami in Japan and all wildlife on the ocean just disappeared. It's bird life, wildlife, uh, marine life. We just lost everything for four days and didn't see anything. And we, you know, we were coming across sperm whale and uh, humpback whales and all sorts of other species that were quite easy for us to film as well, but all of that disappeared. And so we started, we had to exit the country uh, as we only had a license to film for so long. And so we had to head back into port. And as we were going back in, I said to the crew, look, we're not packing up till we actually dock because there is every chance still that we might come across uh, some blue whales. As small as it may seem, you never know. And fair enough, mm -hmm. and sure enough, rather, as we traveled in, we came across a family of eight blue whales. Just uh, clearly they'd just fed. They were lying on the ocean surface, relaxing. And so we, we got the camera crew into the water. We, we gently swam over to them and we filmed them and we were lucky enough that the baby was extremely inquisitive and when i say baby it's 15 meters long and it came up <laughs> came towards us and to check out the camera guys and check out what we were doing and in fact at one moment it swam directly underneath me and came up underneath me and, and eyeballed me and then turned over on its back and just did what i can only describe as a punami it it it, uh, it just completely vented its bowels all over oh, me, nice. and um, it, the orange, the the blue sea turned orange. Um, I had this stuff in my hair all over my t-shirt and and everywhere. Oh, but Lord. it provided another opportunity. I collected the feces and gave it to our scientists, and it was the first time that ever had blue whale feces to study before. And it that actual uh, moment started a whole new set of research which I'm hoping to go back and film at a later date um, to uh, do another documentary. Because from the feces, they were able to tell uh, a lot about the habits, the lifestyle, the age, the DNA of these animals. And uh, there's a now, now an ongoing research study based on that very first incident with the blue whales off the coast of Sri Lanka. Amazing. I mean, I, 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 wonderful stories. And, and I guess it, it, it's so much different for you to be in, in the water in the place and seeing all this uh you know firsthand um obviously you've put a, a phenomenal film together which is incredibly moving um it's like what, what's it like when you when you when you see that whale another whale being opened up and struggling to, is struggling to breathe and its digestive system is clogged with six m square meters of plastic sheeting yeah i mean what does that what's that like to see that so there's another scene in the film and i don't want to give too much away to people who haven't seen it but there's another scene where there's a, okay. a brutus whale is on stranded on the beach um and it stranded itself and it it unfortunately it dies in front of the people who are trying to rescue it and in, and the camera captures the last breath of the whale 
And clearly the whale beached itself because it was distressed. And when scientists opened up its stomach, they found, as you described, uh, an enormous amount of plastic. And, and, and the problem uh, for marine animals, and it's not just whales, it's dolphins, it's seabirds particularly, is that when they consume or mistake plastic for food and consume it, it fills them up and it doesn't allow them to eat anything else. And so they, they literally starve to death. They don't get the nutrients they need. Uh, they become uh, susceptible to disease. And uh, we film the death of that whale. And it is an extraordinarily emotional experience to go through. Uh, we went through it again on Lord Howe Island with the shearwater, the, which are incredibly heroic seabirds. These are birds that emerge from their nest um, they teach themselves how to fly. They, uh, the moment they take off, they spend five years in the air. They, they go up to the Bosphorus Sea, uh, which is a 60,000 round trip, uh, 60,000 kilometer round trip. Uh, wow. uh, and then they come back to their nest and their nests are generally off the coast of Victoria, off the, uh, on the islands of Tasmania, which is where we were uh, filming them off Lord Howe Island. And mm -hmm. because the, uh, fisheries are becoming depleted. They're looking for other sources of food. And from the air, they have incredible smell. And when plastic has been in the ocean for 10, 20, 30 years, it collects a lot of um, algae. Um, some fish and crabs will lay eggs on them. So it starts to smell like food. And so they'll see something bright and shiny in the water. They'll smell it. It smells like food. They'll take it and they'll gorge it. And then they go back to their nest and they feed their babies directly into their mouth, this plastic product. And so the babies come out of their nest, they're underweight, in many cases they struggle down to, to the water's edge to, to begin their life cycle by flying and they can't lift off the ground and they die. And we were picking up 10 to 20 birds a night uh, that were dead on the beach. And when we opened them up, we just found their stomachs filled with plastic and one particular bird we opened up and there was a red bottle top in there and it just made me realize that back in the days when i, I didn't know that sugar was a problem and soda was bad for you and i, I drank uh, products like coca-cola and pepsi and all these other kinds of soft drinks um, I, I threw the plastic bottles away thinking that there was an away but there is no away of course it just moves away oh. from us and so that plastic red bottle cap could have been a lid from a soda bottle that i'd thrown away 10 years ago that had caused the death of that bird and then i realized that we're all culpable for this problem um, you know sure manufacturers um, have a role to play and there is this issue of cradle to cradle responsibility but also as consumers we have a responsibility how do we get organizations like coca-cola to to go and get and find you know every you know all the bottles that they produce you know since they started because i mean they're they're still prolifically produce them every day yeah look and they're still being i mean there's just mountains of this stuff th that's an organization that's been particularly stubborn in uh listening to the problem and accepting change and if and as and if you talk to their executives as i have done they tell me it's because their consumers demand the product to come in that kind of packaging um so that they're actually saying to me you know we're not getting any consumer pressure or pushback on this which if you look at uh, wow. uh, the number of organizations that have been trying to tackle the issue and calling them out on it, I, I disagree with. I think there's, for them, it's, they're not going to change until uh, there is legislative responsibility or impact to do that. And that comes back to how do we move the needle? Um, legislation is, is critical and key. And in the film, we show where Germany, back in 1991, forced manufacturers to be responsible for their products. And that changed the, the, the entire cycle and design of uh, packaging for products. And they actually ma managed to create a circular economy, which saw 80, 90% of their uh, waste, what they call waste, recycled, uh, because people saw value in, in that. Um, you also don't see plastic bottles in the streets in Germany anymore or in, in, in the environment or in rubbish tins because people take them back and recycle them because they put them into reverse vending machines and they get paid to do that. Which goes back to when, you know, when I was a kid, um, soda came in glass bottles and there was a deposit yeah. 
on that. And the deposit scheme yeah. was to encourage people to recycle. You'd take those bottles back yeah. and as kids we'd get money and we could spend that on surfboards and guitars and, and lollies yeah. and everything else, which we did. And we need to go back to that system, it worked. But for companies like Coca-Cola, it's cheaper and more profitable for them to make packaging out of plastic, send it. Um, it's also has a smaller carbon footprint in terms of transportation because it's lighter. So th there are benefits. And ultimately what they say is, look, the product we're using is recyclable. The plastics we are using are recyclable. It's up to the consumers to do that. And this is where recycling is a con because the manufacturers, in order to continue doing what they're doing, which, which ensures their profitability with this sort of packaging, they're placing the problem back into the consumer's fault. And they're saying, if you don't recycle, then this is your problem. And that's wrong. And this is where we need to call manufacturers out and say, no, it's not. You need to provide us with products that are safe for us uh, to consume, by the way, that aren't leaching chemicals into our food and beverages, and also that don't coat the earth like a disease and create a problem for other species. So once again, it comes back to being smarter consumers. It comes back to you know making a choice. I choose products that are uh, beverages, particularly that come in a glass bottle or an aluminium can. And mm -hmm. I, I recycle those because they can be recycled infinitely. Whereas plastics generally, even the best plastics can only be recycled um, six up to 10 times maximum. Uh, then they become too dirty or uh, the degraded in, in the product to actually use for, for high-end products um, particularly or to be recycled back into that same product. Uh, so legislation is key and calling out these companies is key and becoming smarter consumers is key. I want to do a choker cola campaign. I think we should really, I mean, it's, 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 it couldn't be that hard to create awareness, right? Go on. I mean, the people would be trying to get them to change. They're, they're being uh, stubborn and, and not changing. Um, I mean, it's not only that. It's, it's actually the, the product itself is actually killing people. Yeah. You know, it's killing the planet and it's killing people. And it's, and it's a massive burden on society. Yeah. This, uh, that's that's this right. Look, I, I, think we've moved, we've, I think we've created the awareness now. Um, certainly the film has done that job um, since the film was yeah. released and not just because of the film but because of other organizations that have have been campaigning on this but more than 150 countries across the planet have changed legislation introduced bans uh, introduced levies whatever it may be in order to uh, encourage people and producers to, to manufacture packaging that's more sustainable um, Certainly, when I met the environment minister in, in Chile, he told me that he and his wife, like you, uh, had watched the film and cried. And she, they woke up the next morning and he said his wife was digging her elbow into his rib saying, you're the environment minister, go to work, make legislation that solves this problem. And he said that's what he did. He went in and initially they wanted to test consumer response. So they banned plastic bags along the coastline of Chile and had such a, had such a profound positive response to it that they implemented that ban nationally and they worked with the next government um, there was a change of government but they worked with the next government to make sure that that happened so uh, there is the awareness there now uh, what we need to do is to make sure that uh, the solutions are implemented and as i said that comes from pressure uh, and it comes from consumer choice i went into a supermarket earlier this morning uh, and i watched your film last night and it was a bit like a, a massive eye-opener again. I walked through the, through the, all the, you know, going to get certain things. Um, I just noticed how, how few things that were there available that weren't in some form of packaging. Yes. And predominantly plastic. Yes. And even with all this awareness that's going on, you know, our, our biggest supermarkets in this country are still selling everything in plastic packaging. Yes. Yes. Like, when are they going to demand that it changes? Well, when are they going to create the change? This, this is, once again, this is where we need uh, to have legislation um, to force them to into a position where they do change, but also consumer pressure. Uh, uh, in the film, I demonstrate how you can kind of disrupt a supermarket very easily with a little bit of civil disobedience that's not illegal and can be a lot of fun if you do it with a group of people. And that's what I do and what I you know, do to supermarkets is I'll, I'll go to the checkout, I'll take off all the plastic packaging and I'll ask for the manager. 
and the manager will come out and they'll go, can I help you? And in, in Hong Kong, where, where I, I was living up until the pandemic, which made it difficult for me to get back there, but my local supermarket knew me by name because I do this every day. And they'll come down and yes, Mr. Leeson. What they call, is it Payne, Payne Leeson? Yes. <laughs> and I would hand back all the plastic and say, look, I don't want to have to deal with this when I get home. Because when I get home, all I'm gonna have to do is what I'm doing now. But then the yeah. responsibility is for, on me to dispose of that responsibly. And I don't want that responsibility. That's your responsibility. No. And what that does is it slows down the point of profitability for a supermarket, which is the checkout. The faster they can meet yeah. people through the checkout, the more profit they make, the faster they make that profit. So if you hold that up, then it becomes a profit uh, driven exercise and they notice very quickly. So there be uh, groups around the world started to do this in UK. They called it trash the checkout. And there's groups now that go for fun on weekends, 30 or 40 of them will go and do their shopping. They'll hold up all the checkouts as they go through and take off all the plastic. And it has moved the needle. Some, some of the supermarkets there like Waitrose and others have now um, they have what they call nude aisles, and that's where all the fruit and vegetables um, are delivered nude without plastic packaging. And, you know, we don't need bananas and coconuts and oranges uh, wrapped no. in plastic. They come with this incredible packaging of their own, which is completely sustainable, yeah. and then we can compost it. Uh, so why do we need to wrap a coconut, for gosh sakes, in plastic? But that's oh, what people ridiculous. do. Um, there are many supermarkets that are holding back and refusing to do that. And there's one here in Avalon that I keep going to, and it just makes me so angry when I go in and I just see rows and rows of plastic and realize that every day more of this stuff comes in, every day it goes out the front door and every day it goes into landfill and finds its way into the ocean, into the food chain. And of course, who's at the top of the food chain? We are, and it impacts particularly young people. Um, and we just, the fact that we're blind to that because of convenience is frustrating because we need to get that message across to people that this is impacting your health. There are supermarkets. There's uh, you know, a, a, a guy called Richard Walker, who's the CEO and his family runs a company called Iceland in the UK. And he's a, oh, yeah. he, he campaigns quite uh, noisily on the single use plastic issue. And, you know, he has found solutions for the products that he sells in his supermarkets where they're um, either plant-based polymers that they use or they're, they're not plastic at all. They're, it's fiber uh, packaging. And he's written a book about that experience and how difficult it was for him to come to that point because the road there isn't easy. But once you get everybody changing the habit, then it becomes a supply and demand issue. Uh, I work with a company, I'm on the board of advisors of a company in the US called Footprint. And this is a company that has found a way of making packaging for everything from TV dinners, to coffee cups, to uh, soup bowls, and, and everything in between, deodorant sticks and all this sort of thing from fiber, that is recycled fiber. Um, and then it is ultimately can be recycled at the end of its life cycle. So we do have the products now that are available. We've just got to, once again, pressure our political representatives and corporate leaders to ensure that we're doing the right thing by ourselves and by the next generation. I totally agree. I mean, do you think that we can, we can uh, really end the use of single-use plastics within the next generation? Uh, look, I, I think we can do it. The oil and gas industry is doing its utmost to make sure that doesn't happen. And, and the reason they're doing mm -hmm. that is because as we move towards uh, hydrogen-based trans transportation, electric-based transportation, their market share of, of providing uh, energy for that sector is dwindling. And so they're looking for other places to sell their oil products. Uh, packaging and chemical uh, producers of packaging uh, is a market for them. Currently, between 4 and 6% of the world's oil reserves go into making plastic products. So... If they can expand on that, if they can convince us to buy products, single-use products uh, that feed into that, then they're able to expand uh, their, their sales and move from the transportation sales area to you know, the consumer area. And that's what they're counting on. If you talk to them, 
they will tell you um, that their projections are that this is, uh, this is what's happening. And in fact, if you look in America, in the next 10 years, over $200 billion is being spent on building petrochemical plants that actually do this. About six months ago, Shell built a petrochemical plant in Pennsylvania that's caused great problems for the locals because they don't want the outfall of the effluent that comes from this place or the, the mm. pollution that comes out of the, the smokestacks. Um, but also, you know, that there's this, this idea that uh, they're building these uh, plants with investment and they have shareholders on board who are being told that this is going to be a profitable venture. Yet there are companies like Carbon Tracker and, and other organizations that monitor the carbon that's pulled out of the ground and goes into the air that tell us that if you are investing in oil and gas, you are investing in stranded assets because the move to renewables is so profound now and so much money is going into that area that this message to investors, you don't want to be caught with stranded assets, needs to get out into the marketplace. So we've got conflicting messages there. Certainly a lot of the marketing society uh, societies I talk to and give talks to tell me that their consumers are telling them they don't want these products. I think d designers listening in too, each and every one of you has an opportunity to actually make a difference in the projects you're working on right this very moment. You can actually be the conscientious uh, voice uh, on that uh, with your client. If your client's not already saying, hey, you know, I want to be focused on being sustainable, um, find, find ways and, and uh, collaborate with different people, whatever you need to do, technologies, materials, etc. Try to you know, focus on doing the right thing. That's, that's and certainly try to look at doing less, less materials as well. Yeah, and also it's about uh, designing products where the cost price, the, the price point comes down. Uh, what's also important is democratizing products by aggregation, by price point, so that mm -hmm. the average household can afford those products. You know, currently the argument by many people is that, look, to buy alternative products, uh, it costs me more money. To buy organic vegetables that aren't yeah. wrapped in plastic costs me more money. So, you know, this is a supply, this is a design issue and also a supply and demand issue. The more people that buy products that are organic and don't come in plastic, uh, the more farmers will grow that product. The more competition there is, the lower the price becomes. But also by designing, for example, a punnet that will hold blueberries that is the, at, made of recycled cardboard, for example, that a farmer can buy to put his blueberries in that is the same price as a plastic punnet becomes critical because the farmer, you know, when he's talking about sending 10,000 punnets of blueberries to Coles and Woolworths uh, in New South Wales alone, for instance, and he has to buy 10,000 punnets, then every 0.1 cent of a price difference becomes, uh, you know, a, 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 a sheet item that can be the difference between profit and loss. And so they'll always choose, even if he doesn't want to, mm. he'll choose the price and the product that keeps his business alive and going because it is profitable over the product that doesn't. So designers also need to come up with ways of making the products they are designing at the same price point uh, as the products that are already in the marketplace. I totally agree. And I think the other thing that you can do is actually grow your own uh, vegetables and fruit, etc. Well, look, that's something we're looking at, at, at trying to do here in Avalon, um, is encourage people to, to use the available space they've got, whether it's the lawn in their backyard or even the veranda they've got, to grow their own vegetables or become part of a community gardening system um, and mm. getting the council uh, involved where perhaps they provide a, a gardener that travels around to people's gardens to provide advice, to help them uh, get started and maintain proper garden systems. Because, you know, we've got all these, these, these monocultures, which are, which are lawns, which take enormous amount of water and, um, and have to be mowed. Um, you know, with most mowers today still powered by gasoline. And so you've got the problem of carbon being pumped into the air to maintain them. When we could be producing food that's available to everybody, 
and even sent to a marketplace. You know, imagine if we started a market here in each of the communities, in Avalon and Monavale and all the way down the coast. That happened initially once a, a, a week and became maybe like in Paris, where I'm living at the moment, where every day there's a market that runs from 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. and you can go down and get the food that you need just for that day and it's fresh. Um, yeah. You know, the, the French uh, can't get their heads around the fact that people don't buy bread on a daily basis. We buy bread here in, in a plastic bag and leave it for a week and wait till it goes moldy before we go and buy the next one. The, the French can't get over that idea because bread is baked daily, they, they eat it daily, um, their vegetables are available in a marketplace daily. So imagine if we all had the opportunity to grow fruit and vegetables on our veranda. And people go, well, that's too difficult. Listen, I had a, 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 my own vegetable patch in a tiny apartment in Hong Kong, which is still being maintained uh, today for me, where I grew everything from pineapples. And you, if you, people don't understand that what you buy from the, from the supermarket, you can take and regenerate very simply by cutting the, the top off and putting it in some water and then planting it in your own compost. I would compost all my own organic waste, which takes 30% of the waste out of my waste stream, which makes it easier for me to dispose of my waste. I would compost it very simply and turn it into soil. And then I would grow products like pineapple, asparagus, uh, shallots, lettuce that I had taken from the supermarket, just cut the top off and stuck it in water and the roots regenerate themselves. And then voila, you've got your own garden. And it's a very simple thing to do uh, for people. They just don't realize how simple it is. So if we had a community here where we had uh, leaders who are, are good at um, hydroponic gardening or perhaps uh, uh, what they call square foot gardening, which is for small apartments, then I think we can provide mm -hmm. food for everybody. And certainly we can provide organic food without plastic. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. Back in the UK, I remember my mum had a, an allotment um, and that was like, it seemed like everybody had that in England, just an allotment, which was a, which is a council uh, bit of land that was divided up and, you know, everyone had a certain amount. I don't know how much space it was, but she grew everything in there. Yes. You know, all, all year round. And it was just incredible. It's it also healthy f as well for like healthy food. Uh, the physical activity of that and the, and the connection with nature as well yes. and other people that are have the same kind of uh, mindset yeah well, and that's cool. look that that's coming back we're seeing that happen in New York for example rooftop gardening in Hong Kong for example um, and in many places is becoming a big thing because we've got all this rooftop space that's underutilized and uh, to grow crops uh, in New York for example there's a whole generation of beekeepers that are um, hobby beekeepers because their aim isn't just to make honey but it's to help regenerate wild bee populations so that the pollination of, of the plants that we require for, for life on earth and for food uh, continues. So there are so many benefits from undergoing these projects and um, certainly in places you know along the coastline here in, in New South Wales, Tasmania, Victoria uh, there's so much opportunity to start these sorts of projects. I saw on the film that you met Sir David Attenborough and I was like, oh, that must have been incredible. What was that like? He is an absolute legend. Uh, he's exactly as you would imagine him to be. He's exactly as he is on camera. He is a gentle man. He is a deep thinker. He's also a lot of fun. Um, and he's been an inspiration to me since I was a, a kid. And so for me, it was the, uh, just a, a, the culmination of a life's dream is to work with somebody that you've respected for so long, right? And so we got the opportunity to do that. Um, and also got the opportunity to spend time with him. He loves a glass of wine, and uh, as do I. <laughs> and uh, I remember we, after we'd finished filming at the London Zoo, and they were sending a, a car around to pick him up and take him home. And I sidled up beside him and I, I said, David, I said, I don't know about you, but it's been a pretty hot day. How do you, do you fancy a, a cool glass of Sauvignon Blanc? And he said, uh, he said, dear boy, that's the best idea you've come up with all day. And so we jumped in a, in a <laughs> cab and, and off we went to the nearest pub. And I went up to the bar and I, I said to him, so David, what kind of wine would you like? He said, and he said, dear boy, it's not about the quality, it's about the quantity. Get a bottle and bring it over. 
So, so I took a bottle over and we sat there and I asked him one question, which was considerable interest to me was, you know, how have you been able to, to transform through the different formats over the years? You know, he's gone from film to Betamax to VHS uh, to digital and then to ultra high definition. And they're all very yeah. different, and to 3D, and they're all very different mediums and require different working uh, formats. And he, we spent three hours where he just took me through his entire life and um, wow. his triumphs and tribulations and how he had adapted to all of these different formats. And it is one of the most profoundly moving, motivating, inspirational afternoons I've ever spent. Well, I bet you wish you recorded it. I do. Well, I kind of do, and I, I'm, I'm glad we didn't because it was also a very private moment, and it was great to spend some private time with him. And you know, we, we in our field, we spend a lot of uh, a, a lot of our private time is public, and we spend a lot of time yeah. uh, on camera and in the public space. So it's really nice to to switch the cameras off and just have that moment. Well, this is, um, I guess, a segue for we're going to switch it off in a second, but we want to continue with. Um, making sure people see your film um a plastic ocean which is obviously available on netflix but also about the new film the last glaciers uh which is coming out shortly how do people connect with that so we've uh, managed to partner with imax for the film which is fantastic once again as a filmmaker there's no better brands than uh, imax to get your film on the giant screen and to see the, your work presented in on a screen that's three stories big um, and because we went with IMAX, I filmed on IMAX compatible cameras and in such a way that I, I hoped we would, uh, I wanted the film to be screened cinematically. And when we showed IMAX what we had, they loved the idea of, uh, they loved the pictures that we had and the story that we had and the fact that we were focusing on the next generation within the film. And so they asked us to produce a different version for them, a 40 minute version. The, the cinematic version is 96 minutes long and so I spent the last 12 months actually reformatting the film cutting it down to 40 minutes and and believe me it is a very difficult process cutting a 96 minute film down to 40 minutes uh, it's like taking your baby and deciding having to decide which limbs which of the three limbs come off oh, and which God. one remains um, and then of course we had we had to format it into a format that fits the what's called one four three aspect ratio which takes a lot of work as well and the audio had to be recut we had to re redo the composition of the film which was done by a uk band called above and beyond so each step of the process became another enormous task and it's taken 12 months to do that so imax releasing that version in north america on march 22 i'm going back to help them with that launch I want them to release it in Australia. So here's the opportunity for people to make a noise. They can go onto the IMAX.com website and request the film be screened in Australia. Certainly I'll be helping to push that, but it helps if it comes from other people. So I urge everybody to help with that process and on their social media channels and to email them and say, we'd love to see the film in Australia. Wow, that's amazing. And are you working on the next film? The, uh, we've always got films up in the air uh, waiting for them to be financed or begun. I, I'm about to sign off on a new TV series actually. I've been asked to direct a, uh, some episodes of a new TV series with a production company in America. So I'll be starting that process in April. Um, I can't talk any more about it at the moment as it's, uh, it's, it's okay. top secret. but. It, it, I hope that it is a TV series. It is environmentally focused and industry focused. That's a pretty good hint. Mm -hmm. um, and it is designed to try and move the needle, um, move us from awareness to solutions. Uh, I want to go back and do that film on the Blue Whales and complete that film and mm -hmm. look at how far we've come with the research that's been provided by the Blue Whale Poo and use that as the narrative arc for, for the film, but also an excuse to, to get in the water again with these beautiful animals. Uh, so that's going to be a focus as well. And uh, we're also, you know, I mean, a plastic ocean is now, uh, will be four years old. Um, I think that mm -hmm. uh, we should go back 
in five years and take a look at the effects of the film, where we've come since we created awareness with the film and uh, what we've actually done, what we've achieved mm -hmm. as, a, as a species. So that's something I think we will also start to look at in the near future. Wow, man, you are busy. But, uh, and busy doing the right thing, which is amazing. And thank you for well, that. Well, the, the other project that we're working on is this digital platform, uh, which is moving out of the film space. But what I wanted to do and, and, uh, and what Kaz wanted to do with me was look at solutions and demonstrate how the individual can be, become part of the solution. And that is, you know, it's starting at home, becoming a smarter consumer. And that means how do we present products that are easier to purchase, are at the same price point as we mentioned before, but also where it becomes a simple process where each person doesn't have to go online, do the amount of research that we have, you know, that we do in terms of finding whether a product is sustainable, what kind of packaging is it's, the product is surrounded in. Uh, where it was made, is it wasn't made using fair trade, is it B certified? Um, uh, all of these sorts of things, which, you know, to, as you know, take time to ascertain. And so we thought, how do we help consumers with that process? And we thought, well, why don't we build a marketplace where people can go to, they can buy products where we've, we put a rating system on that product. And so we rate it in a certain way, and we're still working out how we do that. But just say it's from, it's from A to D. Um, and AAA rating is the very top. So you can buy a similar product. Say it's a stick of gum. Say that gum is actually naturally sourced from, is real gum from a tree, and it's wrapped in uh, a, a, a packaging that's made from recycled fiber, cardboard. And then there's a stick of gum that actually isn't gum. It's like most gum, it's actually made of plastic, which most people don't realize, but check the, the ingredients on your gum. Most of it is plastic. Um, it's got sugar in it, so it's not good for you, and it's wrapped in plastic. So you choose the product that is natural, wrapped in fiber-based packaging, and therefore that's AAA rating. We reward you for doing that. So we have a rating system that's like an airline's rating system, um, and we give you points for choosing that product over the other product. And at the end of the day, the more products you choose that are more highly rated, then you have points that you can go back and buy other products with on the platform. So we're rewarding consumers to be smarter consumers. We're helping them with that process. And we're also, by encouraging producers to provide products that are more sustainable and at a better price point, we're trying to democratize products through aggregation and, and uh, through the supply and demand chain. One last question before uh, we wind up is, um, and I always ask my guests is, have you designed your life? That is a good question. I, there's two, well, there's one answer, but that has two components. Um, I have opened my life up to allow for experience. And I think experience is what makes me wealthy. Uh, I'm not wealthy monetarily, but I am wealthy with the experience that I've had. And for me, that is my currency and it's the currency I like to trade in. I look mm. towards the end of my life and I ask myself questions now about what I will be asking myself questions of at the end of my life. And it certainly won't be, why didn't you make more money or why did you, <laughs> didn't you work harder? It will be, why didn't you accept that challenge? Why didn't you go to that country? Why didn't you, uh, accept that offer to have that experience. Those are the questions I'll be asking myself. And I don't want to be asking myself those mm. sorts of questions. I want to be able to think, thank God I had that experience. Thank God I accepted that offer. Um, thank God uh, that I challenged myself to create a better world for the next generation, because ultimately that's what I believe my legacy is and what I want to leave. So in doing so, I think I can say, yes, I have designed my life that way. Um, certainly, I've accepted and, and made choices that have steered me into an area of my life that have allowed me to become a filmmaker that allows me to focus on environmental issues that I think are important to, to everybody. And by doing that, my reward is the experiences that I have gained. It's the ability to travel the world, to meet inspirational people from political leaders and prime ministers through to uh, people in villages in tiny islands in the Pacific. 
who are concerned about mm. climate change affecting uh, their habitat because rising sea levels are flooding their homes on a daily basis and, and, and what they're doing to help solve that problem. So uh, I, I think the answer is yes, I have designed my life. I think that some of that design has come from opening myself up to the availability of all sorts of experiences. And some of that may appear random and at the time to me appeared random, but certainly I think yeah. that, um, uh, that it has been curated to a great degree. That's a wonderful response. Thank you for that. And I totally agree with that. I think that one, one thing that really stood out for me in what you said was, and, and I think about this now, every time I go to throw something away, I remember that there is no away. There is an away from us. And I think that if everybody thought about that and was conscious of every time they were to dispose of something, or even when they bought something that, that they knew when they're buying it had some element of disposal at the end. That's that's a great point. And, um, and as you say, it's when they're buying it. I, I actually choose products now where I consider that whether I can reuse the packaging. So if I'm buying soup um, and I also want to buy nuts, I'll buy a jar of soup in a glass jar that I like the design of that I know I can ultimately yeah. keep my nuts in so I can go to a zero waste store um, and fill that jar full of nuts and not have to deal with plastic. Uh, so. I, once again, that comes down to design, right? So I think designers, when they're working with yeah. uh, companies that are producing products, talk to them about their packaging. How can that package be reused? How can it have another life? How can you interest the consumer in your product? Because the packaging is so attractive that they want to keep that in their household. Mm. I want to come. When I come back to Avalon, let's go shopping together. I just want to, or go to some stores together and have a discussion about yes. it further. Mm. But um, Craig, thank you so much for today. Um, stay out of the ocean for a little bit because there's obviously there's been a big shark attack recently. We don't want to uh, get back in there. Uh, as beautiful as the ocean is, is also um, you know can be dangerous as well. But uh, I look forward to catching up with you very soon, and, and good luck with the uh, uh, the glass glaciers. Film Thank as you well. very much. And uh, just on the point of the shark, I, I don't believe it was a shark attack. Sharks are up and down this coast the whole time, and they leave us alone. Mm -hmm. And I've I see footage all the time of sharks swimming under swimmers and surfers and not even glancing at them. Uh, when sharks bite us, it's generally it's uh, because of mistaken identity. We're not in their food chain and the fact that, uh, and it's a terrible tragedy um, that, that it happens. But unfortunately, we kill 100 million sharks a year and uh, to have one shark attack here and then to target the entire species for the next 12 months, I think would be another tragedy. And I don't think we need to follow one with the other. Uh, it is a beautiful place here. I'll certainly be back in the water surfing um, yeah. today, uh, if uh, certainly later on this afternoon, um, because I, I do think it is an isolated incident. But thanks very much for having me on the pro uh, program. Yeah. It's great to talk to you about all these issues. Cool. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for listening in today's special edition episode of Design Your Life, Tied for Change with Tasmanian Australian of the Year, Craig Leeson. Stay tuned for more episodes of our B Corp series, Business for Good, coming soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.